0: Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Zara Casamali Escobar, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at the University of Washington Valley Medical Center and a clinical assistant professor at the University of Washington School of Pharmacy. Today, we are going straight into the heart of an infectious diseases controversy that, when I was in school, was an unthinkable therapeutic recommendation oral beta-lactams for bacteremias and other serious infections. I'd like to introduce my panelists. Dr. Jesse Sutton is an infectious diseases pharmacist with the VA Salt Lake City Healthcare System in Salt Lake City, Utah. He practices as a clinical pharmacy specialist in antimicrobial stewardship. His research interests continue to develop but are largely driven by questions generated by common patient care scenarios. Welcome, Jesse.
1: Hi, Thanks for having me on.
0: Our other panelist is Dr. Jill Cowper. She is the Division Infectious Diseases Pharmacist for HCA Healthcare's Capital Division in Richmond, Virginia. In this role, she oversees and assists with antimicrobial stewardship programs for 19 facilities. Her research interests include impact of antimicrobial stewardship strategies, especially as they relate to pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic dose optimization.
2: Hi, Jill. Hi, Zara. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, so we're going to get right into this and talk about this clinical scenario that we all see a lot of, which is a gram-negative bacteremia for which a patient is treated with ceftriaxone, and then after about three or four days, they're ready for discharge. Jesse, you published a recent study in JAMA looking at this very question across 114 VA hospitals, including just over 4,000 patients. About a quarter of them received beta-lactam step-down therapy after one to five days of parenteral antibiotics for bacteremia due to enterobacterialis. The remaining received a fluoroquinolone. Ultimately, what you reported was a combination of 30-day all-cause mortality and 30-day recurrent bacteremia, which occurred at a rate of 4.4% in the beta-lactam group versus 3% in the fluoroquinolone group. So the conclusion that you and your co-authors drew was, and I'm going to quote you here oral beta-LATAM antibiotics are a reasonable step-down treatment option on an individual patient basis, primarily when alternative options are limited by resistance or adverse effects. So I just saw on Twitter, an infectious diseases physician and Alison Bond, she said, or she tweeted, that is not unreasonable is the equivalent of saying I love you in infectious diseases. So Jesse, do you love beta-lactam's oral step-down therapy for bacteremia? And how has your investigation impacted your opinion on this issue?
1: I hadn't seen that quote, so I got a a pretty good kick out of that. Um, I'd have to say it's probably something less committed than love. Um, And I, I have changed on this over time. My transition kind of began when I started doing stewardship and you know, doing stewardship, you kind of see all the things that happen throughout your hospital, throughout your healthcare system, and you can't intervene on all of them. And so you just start to see things days after they happen. Um, and this was one of those that uh, didn't happen infrequently. Um, people were, you know, you'd have a patient that would come in with pyelonephritis. Um, they get a couple of days of IV antibiotics, and they get switched to oral. And my anecdotal observations, and just kind of. Um, semi-systematically following these patients and seeing how they did um, that it seemed like they're doing okay. There was not people that were immediately dying or having recurrences at a high rate. Um, and then, you know, so that kind of triggered me to look at what information is out there. And there, there wasn't much, I mean, this was before all the, the observational studies that we have right now. I mean, I think that's where I was at when we designed our study, um, thinking that this might be okay, uh, especially for some patients and for some sources. But I still had a lot of questions. Um, you know, really, who and when do these observations apply if, you know are, are the difference in outcomes? Is it just so small that if you have a small sample size, you're not catching uh, a potentially meaningful difference? And so I'd say our, our study and the meta-analysis, I've, I found the results um, reassuring and I'm referring to a meta-analysis that was done by Punjabi and colleagues, which included several, I think it was seven or eight observational studies, and it was published shortly before, or a year or so before ours came out, and the results were largely consistent. Mortality rates in our study were 3% in the beta-lactam group and 3% in the comparator group, and in the meta-analysis, it was about 4% in the beta-lactam group and 5% 5% in the fluoroquinolone or fluoroquinolone and trimethiconsultimethax as well group. Mm-hmm. Recurrent bacteremia rates in our study were 1.4% with beta-lactams and a half percent with fluoroquinolones and then about 2% with beta-lactams versus 1% fluoroquinolones in the meta-analysis. And so, you know, I find these data reassuring in the sense that poor outcomes were overall rare and then comparatively, they're, they're not drastically worse. And again, this is the context of people usually got three, four, or five days of IV antibiotics before being switched. So I find these data reassuring. I still have unanswered questions on this topic. Uh, you know, I'm not. Com- completely confident this effect is due to oral beta-lactams as opposed to, uh, you know, other reasons like people were completely cured by the time that they were switched. And, and the recurrent bacteremia rates were twice as high with beta-lactams. These rates are still low comparatively and overall, and this could be due to, to bias or confounding, or it could be that beta-lactams are slight. So forgive me, I'm long-winded, but all that to say, uh, I don't self-identify as a enthusiastic supporter of oral beta-lactams for step down over all other alternatives. You know, I, it's not necessarily, we should do this. This is the go-to. I, I mentally don't, you know, in giving a beta-lactam, I don't think of them as equivalent pharmacokinetically, pharmacodynamically. I'm a little bit more on edge or cautious about it. I do consider them a treatment option though, um, especially for certain sources and, and patients. And we do use them at my institution not infrequently. So I, I do think that that quote that they're reasonable can be interpreted somewhat literally rather than I love them.
0: Great. So it, it sounds like you support polyamory when it comes to your antibiotics for or your choices for step-down therapy. Um, which I think many, many of us can relate to. Um, so one of the principal concerns about oral beta lactams in bacteremias is, is their bioavailability. And CUSERS, our, our go-to text for infectious diseases pharmacists, quotes bioavailability for cefpodoxime as 50%, ceftonir in suspension as 25%, cefalexin at almost 100%, and amoxicillin at over 90%. So. Jill, does the bioavailability of each individual agent change your opinion or willingness to treat bacteremia with them?
2: Yeah, Zara, I I think this is a great question. Um, It is something that I consider when I'm making recommendations on using one oral beta-lactam over another for bacteremia. Um, As you mentioned, cephalexin has a bioavailability of up to 100%, and amoxicillin has a bioavailability that reaches 92%. Um, these are really great and are higher than some of our conventional quote-unquote high bioavailability antibiotics such as Cipro and azithromycin even. Um, but as ID pharmacists, we, we tend to, and rightly so, you know, focus on several other important PKBD factors when it comes to choosing one antibiotic over another. And bioavailability is really just one piece of the puzzle. So um, I think I think we see that from some of the studies out there that have shown some conflicting findings. For example, an article by Tama and colleagues found no differences in clinical outcomes between patients converted to high versus low bioavailability agents and uncomplicated Enterobacteriales bacteremia. Uh, Mercuro and colleagues also found no differences in stepping down to a fluoroquinolone versus an oral beta-lactam, again, uncomplicated gram-negative bacteremia. A Jesse study, no difference in outcomes between fluoroquinolones and trimsulfa compared to our oral beta-lactams. Uh, but primary source of infection there was urinary though, so uncomplicated again. Um, an article by Kutab and colleagues evaluated oral antibiotics for definitive therapy of gram-negative bloodstream infections and found that the risk of treatment failure increased as the bioavailability of the oral antibiotic decreased. Um, Now, these were primarily urinary sources of infection, so again, uncomplicated. And there were a variety of different oral beta-lactams prescribed, but compliance with the oral antibiotic was was not measured since this data was based on discharge uh, notes. Um, Punjabi and colleagues performed a meta-analysis comparing fluoroquinolones versus oral beta-lactams for step-down therapy and enterobacteriales bacteremia. And they found, um, or they also found, an increased risk of infection recurrence with oral beta lactams. What they attributed this to is one of two things. Uh, One of those being more frequent dosing required with oral beta lactams leads to poor compliance, which we know would lead to suboptimal exposures and may have actually been one of the issues in the study by Kutab and colleagues. Um, Or, secondly, suboptimal dosing of oral beta lactams, which we also know would lead to suboptimal exposures.
0: So to follow up on that, from a PKPD standpoint, for the beta-lactams that have lower bioavailability, can this be overcome with a change in dosing intensity or dosing frequency?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so we know beta-lactams exhibit time-dependent activity, right? And so you know, their activity is best predicted by the amount of time free drug concentrations exceed the MIC. And so with that in mind, if we give lower doses more frequently throughout the day, we should be maximizing their pharmacodynamic properties and subsequently their efficacy. Um, There was a a really nice review done by uh, Mogul and colleagues in 2019, where the authors discussed several clinical variables that we should consider when deciding on which, if any, oral beta-lactam should be used as step-down therapy for a gram-negative bloodstream infection and they included this fantastic table comparing the percentage of time free concentrations are above MICs for various oral beta-lactams, and they looked at this based on the frequency of wild-type MICs among E. coli isolates, Um, so really the most common MICs we'd see in our patients. And what's highlighted in this table is that cefalexin should actually be dosed at a gram every six hours and amoxicillin at a gram every eight hours, both of which are higher than traditional dosing for most indications for these antibiotics. It also shows that for some oral beta-lactams like cefuroxime and ceftonir, were actually unlikely to hit adequate exposures for bacteremia based on the usual dosing regimens. Um, and in a study by Catawb and colleagues that found an increased risk for infection recurrence with low bioavailability antibiotics Almost all of the patients that received those quote unquote low bioavailability antibiotics received a suboptimal dose based on PKPD data. So if those agents were appropriately dosed, would we have seen improved outcomes? Um the, the Macuro study also had um, several patients on suboptimal doses, and, and they found, again, no significant difference compared to fluoroquinolones as step-down therapy. And so, you know, some may wonder why there's a discrepancy then. So, you know, first, there were some patients in that study that did receive an appropriate dose. Um, second, there, there was actually a small but numerically higher incidence of reinfection in the oral beta lactam group in that study, also. So, if there was a larger sample size and perhaps more suboptimal dosing, similar to the study by Kutab and colleagues, would there have been a difference observed in that study as well? Uh, but there wasn't, and, and maybe this was because of improved dosing in some of those patients. Uh, now, in, in Jesse's study, almost all patients received a suboptimal dose, according to that PKPD data presented in, in the Mogul review. However, these were elderly male patients, and so we might expect slower clearance and increased exposures, and so it could be that they were getting adequate doses after all. I'll go on to to talk about the the TAMA study, um, but those were small numbers. So it's really interesting, you know, and, and, you know, based on what we've done with IV beta lactams, you know, optimizing their dosing to enhance pharmacodynamic exposures, you know, I think the same could be said for oral beta lactams. And and maybe we should be pushing the dose on some of these agents if we want to use them for more serious infections or or for bloodstream infections.
0: Great. Thanks, Jill. And and I'll mention that you know, you've know you mentioned a lot of citations and we'll have those on the show notes of this podcast for those of you who want to read more. Um, Jesse, do you think bioavailability is a fair assessment for why beta-LATAMs seem to perform less well versus fluoroquinolones or other higher bioavailable antibiotics?
1: When I look at the existing literature though, I, I don't know that it's all because of dosing. Um, I, I think it's likely a reason some patients, but You know, trying to do this, I think retrospectively classifying who did and did not get an adequate exposure is just a really rough guesstimation. You know, that's ultimately, we did not even attempt to control for in our study. As Joe mentioned, my guess is that a meaningful proportion of the patients in our study did not have an optimal exposure. So I I don't think suboptimal BK is a primary explanation in the existing observational literature. Um, I suspect that a small fraction of the outcome and outcome difference was attributable to PKPD. Um, and my thought process is that there is, um, you know, there's a proportion of patients that are going to die no matter what. Uh, not every bad outcome is avoidable. There was studies by the the Midwestern-Northwestern group in Chicago that they have looked at how sick is the patient using a severity of illness score, and it doesn't matter if you achieve the PKPD target. And there's, they call it, I remember the study because they have Goldilocks in the title. There's kind of a Goldilocks window. Um, in patients that aren't very sick, uh, it, it didn't seem to um, come out as a significant factor. Uh, achieving your PKPD target didn't um, seem to be a significant f- factor um, associated with good outcome or bad outcome. Um, and then on the other side, uh, patients that were really sick uh, achieving the PKPD target um, didn't you know, by itself prevent death. There are some patients that are gonna have a recurrence of infection or recurrence of bacteremia no matter what. Um, you know, this could be to, due to inadequate source control or you know, someone could have like a, an abscess in their kidney that you, just, you didn't know about when they were in the hospital because um, they improved. And so there's no reason to look for it at that point. And then there are other people that just can have functional and and structural abnormalities that predispose to recurrence, whether you give them drug A, drug B, whether you treat them for seven days, whether you treat them to 14 days. Um, Most studies try to adjust for these. Uh, I I just don't know how completely effective it is uh, retrospectively and in smaller studies, uh, like like all the ones that I've done kind of are. Um, You know, an example that jumps out to me from our study is, you know, we limit only to urinary source. We control, we try to control for urologic uh, abnormalities, we try to control for procedure that people receive, but um, we, we categorize that as a dichotomous variable. You had a urologic procedure or you didn't. That doesn't differentiate between someone that had a complete bladder reconstruction or someone that had urinary stents placed and the stents are retained and the stones are retained and they have a urinary catheter in for the entire follow-up period. Um, you know, differentiate that from a patient who just had a ureteroscopy and their stone was completely removed right at the time of the procedure. Um, we deal with those patients the same in the analysis, and so that's just, you know, that's a limitation of literature. I think Bad outcomes were very rare in these studies, and I just think that it leaves a very small fraction where the outcome was was modifiable due to the drug that was selected and then the dose. So, I, I my interpretation of the existing literature is that it's really patient-specific factors, bias, and and confounding that um, were bigger factors. And that's not to say that PKPD had no influence. Um, I think you know I want to differentiate interpreting the past literature with what I think should be done going forward. Uh, I think if you're going to use these, you shouldn't say like, oh, it doesn't matter. So I'm just gonna give any dose and, and move on. You know, if you're gonna if you're going to use it, I, I do think we um, should be attempting to, to optimize PKPD. Um, and I think, you know, if you change around some factors like the infection source, the, their source control status, um, the time, if, if we're switching people to, um, or beta lactams earlier, you know, earlier than three, four, five days, then I think this this fraction of patients where PKPD matters, I suspect it would increase. Um, and so, you know, Jill talked about the, the mobile review article. I think they do a very nice job kind of walking you through how to think about this. Um, and, and so I'd, I'd refer people to that. Uh, but I think it's also important to keep in mind that oral beta lactams and their and the recommended dosing regimens that you look up in, in references um, they weren't designed or approved to to treat bacteremias um, and so you need to take those and the breakpoints too for what's considered susceptible they're not intended for for bacteremia, and so they need to be taken with a grain of salt and and just kind of you know, to provide a, a specific example um, in the context of that MOGO review article, the amoxicillin enterobacterialis breakpoint is, is eight um, for, for what FDA or CLSI considers susceptible. Uh, per the MOGO article, the maximum MIC um, that you should be using this in uh, in order to achieve your PKBD target is an amoxicillin Intervectory ACA or intervectory MIC of one. And that's using a dose of one gram Q8. Um, if you pull up the, the UCAS database, um, most of the amoxicillin susceptible E. coli isolates, and that's, that's getting rid of the resistant ones, it's just the susceptible ones. So you would have a patient specific uh, susceptibility report, and you would say, you know, ampicillin susceptible, most likely. Um, those those susceptible isolates are in the range of 0.5 to 8, with most of them being between 2 and 8. And so at my institution, we use Phoenix for automated susceptibility testing, and um, it does. You know, say we have an E. coli isolate, it, it would tell us that there's an amp- ampicillin MIC as low as less than or equal to 4. Um, and I know a lot of institutions wouldn't even have that much information. You just might have uh, interpretive criteria of susceptible or resistant. And so that MIC report that says um, less than or equal to four, that could be four or, or it could be one. And so seeing just that it's ampicillin susceptible isn't completely reassuring.
0: Thanks, Jesse. I like the two points that you you know you really brought up, which is that you know PKPD would rely so much on an MIC. And it's so variable, you know, that the standard error is like a doubling dilution, which a doubling or halving of a dose is a big deal for a patient. So it's a really nice point. And then secondly, you know, this idea uh, a little bit of predestination, when you think about a patient and their background characteristics and finding the ones for whom what we do is gonna make a difference. Um, We're gonna have to treat everybody as though it's always gonna make a difference, but also understanding that um, we don't have the control or PKPD isn't going to be the ultimate deciding factor for every single patient, which I think is a really nice point. So um, one of the things, so thinking about that idea is, you know, in your study, Jesse, you talked about this, and this has also been reported in other data, a possible explanation for success of beta lactams as step-down therapy is that Patients receive an average of five days of intravenous antibiotic therapy before they switch to orals, particularly in the case of uncomplicated gram negative bacteremia, for which total duration of therapy is often seven days. Do you think the data would be different if we switched to oral therapy after one or two days of intravenous therapy?
1: I, I'm not confident that it would be. Um, you know, earlier I said we, we use them at my institution. A lot of times our assumption is the patient's cured. Um, you know, we, we have the patient in front of us, we see how they do, you know, we know if they have any of these, or, or most of the time we know if the, we have, if they have any of these uh, structural or, or functional abnormalities that would predispose to recurrence. And so um, that, that factors in a lot is, is this patient already better at, after they switched to to um, oral. And so I, I don't say say it's one, two days of IV and then switch. I, I don't know. Um, I don't feel as comfortable. I don't feel as confident. Uh, in our study, I, I looked it up this morning, there are 153 patients, so 16% of the oral beta-lactam group were switched after one to two days of IV. So it's just not very many. Um, I, I think another important point, too, though, is I wouldn't switch until you have susceptibilities. Okay, I'm not just assuming like, oh, they got better on ceftriaxone so I'm, I'm gonna switch them to subplodoxime. You should really be um, basing that more so on the, the subazolin uh, susceptibility. Um, so assuming it's susceptible, I mean, I think source source control patient factors and, and how well they've responded so far are going to play in. Um, you know, the earlier, the earlier you switch, I think the earlier uh, or the more that the PKPD dosing selection, drug selection is going to matter. I don't know how much it's going to matter, though. Uh, We do have two randomized trials in enterobacteriales, bacteremia from a variety of sources, comparing seven versus 14 days, but they don't go any lower than that. You know, I I touched on in our study, the the recurrent bacteremia rates, um, which I do think is the outcome that is most meaningful in all of these studies. It was twice twice as high with orobata lactams, uh, both in our study and in the meta-analysis. you know, we're talking about one versus two percent. That's smaller than what I would consider to be clinically meaningful. Um, but I also find it plausible that the the separation, you know, that that one percent difference might increase to something higher if you're switching earlier. You know, a lot of times we talk just about the bacteremia studies. I do think there's some insights that you can gain when you go back and look at. Um, uh, Trials from from primary site infections. So, um, whether I'm right or wrong, I think about uh, these infections more as the source. Uh, you know, for example, I think a patient with pyelonephritis um, is more similar to a patient with pyelonephritis plus E. coli bacteremia than comparing someone that has E. coli bacteremia from from a biliary source to a, to a urinary source. And so, I, I do um, I look. Kind of at the, the primary site infection studies as well. A study from 1990, this was done by um, Sandberg and colleagues. It was looking at um, treatment of pyelonephritis in outpatients. It included both males and females. And patients who were randomized to norfloxacin or cephydroxyl right away. So they didn't get any IV antibiotics beforehand. But I think this is informative to saying, like, okay, if we take out the IV antibiotic part of this, what you know? What is the oral? Um, what is the oral beta lactam doing? And sevagroxacil one gram bid may not be the most representative drug. You know, we we might not use that. We might not use that dose. Um, but I, I so you know I'm not saying this is completely uh, representative, but I think um, it, it provides us with some information. There were about a hundred patients in each group. Um, only 15 total patients were bacteremic. Um, and in the study, as far as clinical response, you know, after five to seven days, did the patients' symptoms get better? It was the same in both groups. But then, when they in the follow-up period, um, you know, they did follow-up visits. I think a week after, and three, four, five weeks after, um, there were more patients in the beta lactam and the cephalosporin group that had a symptomatic recurrence. Uh, it was 28% versus 3%, so a, a fairly big difference. And most of those were within 10 days of stopping the antibiotics. So again, I don't know that 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 I mean that study doesn't directly address the question, but I do think it provides some information on how well um, upfront treatment with a PO beta lactam would work. It makes me um, a little bit more leery about um, you know earlier switches to.
2: Yeah, I'll chime in as well, Zara, and I I think this is an important question that actually brings up another question I I think needs to be studied. So, you know, first looking back at, again, that study by Kutab and colleagues where where treatment failure was associated with their category of bioavailable um, agents. Uh, There was no difference in in treatment failure between patients who received less than five days versus five days or more of appropriate IV therapy before stepping down to an oral agent. It was 10% versus 9%. And then the average duration of IV antibiotics was the same in all of their step-down groups at around um, four to five days. And and this variable also was not found to be associated with treatment failure in in their univariate Cox model, and so it didn't predict treatment outcomes and and was not a confounder in in their study. Um, In the TAMA study, the the large majority of, of their patients had a short course of IV therapy at a median of three days. However, total duration was 14 days, and again, these patients had source control, they had a susceptible organism, they were able to take oral and their pit bacteremia score was one or less. Um, Almost half were were urinary sources and so these were uncomplicated cases. Um, In the study by Mercuro and colleagues, they actually found no difference in clinical success when comparing patients who were switched to oral therapy after three days or less of empiric IV therapy compared to those who were switched at greater than three days of empiric IV therapy. This was 86.7% in the oral beta-lactam group compared to 87.5% in the fluoroquinolone step-down group. And this variable also was not found to be predictive of clinical failure in their bivariate analysis. So again, duration of IV antibiotics did not predict outcomes in that study either. So while the duration of IV therapy didn't seem to make a difference in these studies, I actually don't believe one to two days was, was seen very often. And The large majority likely received at least three days, and so I don't think we really know the answer to the question based on the data that we currently have. Now, interestingly, in this study by Mercuro and colleagues, there was also no difference in clinical success when comparing short versus an extended duration of overall therapy, which they defined as seven to 10 days versus greater than 10 days. In the other studies, including Jesse's, the average or median duration of overall therapy was about 14 days. And so, I think another question here is, which um, I think Jesse alluded to earlier, if if we step down to an oral beta-lactam, you know, what is the appropriate total dura- duration of therapy? Can we still use seven days based on some of the the nice data coming out around shorter durations of therapy? or does it need to be longer if we switch earlier in the course of therapy? So I think maybe that's something that you can add to your list of research questions, Jesse. That's
0: a great point, Jill. So the pendulum has swung pretty strongly away from fluoroquinolones because of multitudes of black box warnings for tendonitis, myasthenia gravis exacerbation, peripheral neuropathy, aortic aneurysm rupture. Um, Aside from this scary list of complications, do you think that this this swing away from the fluoroquinolones is merited?
2: Yeah, I I think we've all become pretty familiar with the the issues with the fluoroquinolones. You know, first, for, for anyone who wants actually a really nice timeline of the FDA warnings, I would encourage you to pull the recent article written by Monica Mahoney in CID. It was really well done. I think she does a nice job in highlighting where fluoroquinolones still actually have a place in therapy. Um, but yes, you know, I believe that the FDA does a nice job in reviewing and assessing side effects of medications and releasing warnings around those when necessary. And you know, for the fluoroquinolones, there are so many risks for side effects and collateral damage that you know, if we can use an alternative drug that's safer, that's what I would reach for. And so just thinking about all the risks associated with fluoroquinolones. Now, it kind of started out in 2008. There was a warning that came out regarding the risk of tendonitis and tendon rupture. Then in 2011, a box warning regarding worsening myasthenia gravis symptoms was added. Then in 2013, peripheral neuropathy was added as a safety warning. That was then followed by an advisory warning in 2016 around their use for uncomplicated infections, and the FDA recommended that fluoroquinolones not be used for uncomplicated infections if there were other treatment options. And then I think the last one was in 2018 where the FDA strengthened warnings around the risk of hypoglycemia leading to coma and made the risk of mental health side effects more prominent and more consistent across each of the fluoroquinolones. Of course, you know, we also know there are issues with C. diff, you know, they're one of the classes of antibiotics that are most strongly associated with an increased risk of C. diff infection. And of course, when someone has an initial C. diff infection, they have an increased risk for a recurrent infection and that just goes on and on. So, you know, there's an enormous issue with fluoroquinolones and their risk for C. diff as well. And then resistance, you know, that's another problem when it comes to fluoroquinolones when they arrived on the scene, they were very popular. They were broad spectrum. They had pseudomonas activity. Uh, They had an oral formulation, high bioavailability, a lot of, you know, benefits to fluoroquinolones. And this led them to be one of the most commonly prescribed antibiotics, particularly in the outpatient setting. But all of us are well aware that as use of any antibiotic increases like the fluoroquinolones did, resistance then follows. And that's what we've seen, you know, is a large increase in resistance, mostly among the gram negatives like pseudomonas and E. coli. And so like many other hospitals, you know, we've really focused on unnecessary use of fluoroquinolones. We know they have their place and they're appropriate in several cases, but they are overused. And so we really wanted to focus on reducing that unnecessary use where we have appropriate alternatives. And we've done a lot with this, um, which I'm sure is similar to other institutions, education, provider-specific letters, um, implementing cascade susceptibility suppression, so collaborating with micro and uh, removing them from order sets and guidelines where, where possible one of the hospitals that I work with, they came up with this fantastic flyer to display to their healthcare providers and spread the message to discourage fluoroquinolone use. The title is fantastic. I wish I could take credit for it, but um, it came from the pharmacy team at Frankfurt Regional Medical Center in Frankfurt, Kentucky. So kudos to them. And the title is don't. It was a great idea, super catchy, and it was very effective.
0: Yeah, I love that catchy title. And actually, I um, have been talking about it over here in Washington and attributing it to you. So now I will give the credit to uh, Frankfurt Regional Medical Center. So much of the data in use of oral beta lattans in bacteremia is step-down therapy in bacteremia due to a urinary source of infection and generally the target pathogen is an enteric gram-negative rod. But I want to run through some scenarios with you guys for situations outside of this norm and see where each of you falls when considering oral beta-lactam treatment. So the first one uh, I want to touch on is intra-abdominal infections after source control. And Jesse, you can be first on deck. All right, so
1: uh, um, for intra-abdominal infections, I think, and you know, a lot of the data, especially with regard to duration of therapy, it really points to source control being far more impactful and meaningful than antibiotics. And so, um, I feel okay about it in this situation. You know, part of that again is kind of a hedge that the initial IV antibiotics are doing most of the work along with source control um, within the realm of intra-abdominal infections. Um, I, I feel better about biliary infections, so specifically cholangitis and cholecystitis, as opposed to um, the comp- complicated peritonitis, like a bowel perforation. Um, and you know, my my thought process behind that is that um, some of the PO beta lactams get higher concentrations in the bile than the blood. Um, you know, the big one that I'm referring to here is amoxicillin and amoxicillin clavulanic. Um, I looked it up, and it's about three to four times higher in the bile than the blood. Uh, I don't know if that fully matters, but it doesn't seem like it would hurt, um, so I find some reassurance there. And then um, there are some comparative observational studies, specifically in cholangitis, uh, in patients that have received an ERCP, so had adequate source control. and. Um, you know, they report good outcomes using durations that are quite a bit shorter than seven days. Um, And and a lot of patients in these studies are bacteremic, just, um, you know, with this disease state, the the rate of bacteremia is very high. And so if you look at all these studies, it's it's dozens per study, there's over a hundred patients overall um, that are getting two, three, four days of antibiotics after uh, an ERCP. And so, um, those are, are still some small numbers, and there's probably differences in the patients that are given a short and long duration. But uh, again, I'm more comfortable switching to PO because I uh, don't know how much work the PO antibiotics actually have to do. Um, for a complicated peritonitis, I probably still prefer uh, fluoroquinolone or monoprim Um, but I've, I've used oral beta-lactams and I still I think prefer them over doing OPAT for or outpatient peroral antimicrobials. Um, just a complete and arbitrary seven days if the patient's better. Um, and you know, if if I was stepping, especially outside of this urine source, if I was going to step down to an oral beta lactam to complete seven days, ten days, fourteen days, um, I still uh, usually recommend doing three to four days of IV before doing that.
2: Yeah, I agree with Jesse. You know, as long as the patient has adequate source control and is clinically improved after IV therapy, um, I will add that the the second most common source of bacteremia and some of the studies mentioned previously were intraabdominal, behind urinary, of course.
0: Great. Okay, so what about complicated skin and soft tissue infections like diabetic foot infection? Jill, why don't you start us?
2: Yeah. So interestingly, you know, complicated skin and soft tissue infections haven't been. Represented well in studies to date on this topic. And I think that may be because of the rarity of secondary bloodstream infections with this indication. I'm also not aware of much literature for use of oral beta lactams for this indication when there isn't a secondary bacteremia. You know, diabetic foot infections, they're just a, a different entity than skin and soft tissue infections not associated with diabetes. And so I think we need to, you know, more carefully consider drug concentrations at the site of infection and the most likely or confirmed etiologic organism. Um, And then looking at the the last iteration of the diabetic foot infection guidelines, you know, granted this was last updated in 2012, oral beta-lactams are options for mild infections, but for moderate or severe infections, oral beta-lactams are no longer considered, and and that's where IV therapy is recommended. And so, you know, taken together, I I think there could be a place for oral beta-lactams here, but I think it just needs to be done with consideration of source control if it's needed, response to IV therapy, PKPD data as we discussed earlier, and, and etiologic pathogens if any are identified.
1: Yeah, I, I echo Jill's sentiment there, especially on diabetic foot infections. It's it's tough because there's just not a lot of data, and um, as far as we know, these these patients do have some special considerations. Um, I. You know, I could see myself recommending it if you know you couldn't use any of the other oral alternatives that achieve um, the same concentration in the blood, whether given IV or PO, or if, you know, uh, outpatient parental antimicrobials just were not worth the risk or com- completely infeasible. So there, there are some scenarios where I wouldn't completely write it off, but it wouldn't be my, my go-to. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull the classic pharmacy move of not directly answering the question you asked, but but answering a different one. So I still sound kind of smart. Um, one situation that Jill mentioned that we do see sometimes, and it's not gram negatives, but strep bacteremia um, or beta hemolytic strep bacteremia from someone with uncomplicated cellulitis. Um from, from a PKPD standpoint, I I feel pretty good about beta-lactams there. And that's primarily because the MICs to strep versus you know, amoxicillin and cephalexin are quite low. Um, lower than we see with gram negatives, lower than we see with Staphylococcus species, lower than we see with Enterococci. Um, and so um, I, I feel a little bit more comfortable there. Um, Note: when I say that I'm, I'm kind of ignoring how much drug gets to the skin, to the site of infection. Um, And that's, again, just a rabbit hole that uh, probably best we don't go down at this time. Um, There was uh, a small recent observational study uh, kind of looking at this. This was in antimicrobial agents and chemotherapy um, just in the last few months. And it was by a a group from Advocate Health in Illinois. Um, They compared step-down treatment with fluoroquinolones versus oral beta-lactams in patients with uncomplicated streptococcal bacteremias the most common source of infection was was skin in this situation, in this situation. It was, it was still only about 80 patients and, and they did receive several days of IV beforehand, but curates were 92 to 93% in both groups. And so it's not much data, but it does kind of match up with um, the expected PKPD data.
0: Great, so I see you at that pivot to gram positives and I'm gonna raise us to osteomyelitis and endocarditis. So um, the OVIVA trial oral versus intravenous antibiotics for bone and joint infection and POET study partial oral versus IV antibiotic treatment for endocarditis trials, they were both published in 2019. So have these studies changed your feelings about beta-lactams and these more, um, I guess I would call them complicated infections that are really more related to gram-positive versus gram-negative organisms? Joel, what do you think?
2: yeah, I'll go ahead and start with the the POET study, and I I think there are a few important things to keep in mind with this one. So, first off, it was a great study, right? Randomized, multicenter. It it was in Denmark, and it was looking at the the efficacy and safety of partial oral therapy of left-sided infective endocarditis compared with continued IV therapy. Now, patients received at least seven days of IV antibiotics, They had to have had a satisfactory response to initial therapy based on several variables. And those with a BMI of greater than 40 or those with reduced compliance were excluded. Also, these were not IV drug users. Less than 2% of the population had a history of IV drug use. And these were all relatively susceptible gram positive organisms. Large majority were strep species. About a quarter were enterococcus faecalis and another 20% were MSSA. There were no cases of MRSA. So compared to some of the endocarditis patients that we may see in some of our hospitals, this was a relatively healthier group of endocarditis patients with more susceptible organisms than what we might encounter here in the US. Also, the oral regimens that patients were switched to consisted of two antibiotics from different drug classes, and so this could include an oral beta-lactam with fusidic acid or rifampin, moxifloxacin, linazolid or clindamycin. And it's also, I think, very worth noting that the doses of the oral beta-lactams were higher than standard doses. Amoxicillin was given at a dose of a gram four times daily and dicloxacillin was also given at a dose of a gram four times daily. So again, much higher than what we would use for less severe infections. And um, for those of you who are familiar with the POET trial, you already know that oral therapy was found to be non-inferior to continued IV therapy with respect to their primary outcome, which was a composite of all-cause mortality and other complications like unplanned cardiac surgery, embolic events, and bacteremia relapse. And so I do think, you know, there could be a place for oral beta lactams in the treatment of endocarditis, but It really should be selected for the right type of patient, at least a week of IV therapy, if not longer, based on the patients in the POET study. Um, Also clinically responded to IV therapy. Um, Importantly, likely to have good compliance since the dosing would be four times daily. And then obviously the causative pathogen has to be susceptible to oral options. So I don't think we'll be able to use it often in clinical practice, but I am certainly optimistic that we may be able to eventually find a good patient, a right fit, you know, that might qualify based on the POET studies criteria.
1: Yeah, I, I think that was a really nice summary uh, of POET by Jill. Um, and I, I, I agree with that. And then I do recall too that they did measure beta-lactam concentrations um, in that study and again, most of it was was streptococcus, but um, they were able to achieve therapeutic levels. Um, And so I think that's encouraging for, um, even if people aren't ready to do that clinically, I think it's also encouraging for for more studies and future studies and specifically looking at oral beta-lactams if people are interested in that.
0: Awesome. Jill, that was an incredible, incredible summary of the POET study. And I agree with both of what you guys have said. Um, and, and I think back to what Jesse said, that the, the patient that we're going to find for POET is clearly a Goldilocks patient, especially compared to who we see uh, in the United States with endocarditis. So Jesse, uh, why don't you walk us through and tell us what you think about um, OVIVA and osteomyelitis?
1: Yeah. So OVIVA was a randomized trial of about 1,000 patients, It included patients that had a variety of bone and joint infections and a variety of source control strategies here. So. Um, We're talking about a fairly heterogeneous group uh, people that had, you know, primary osteomyelitis, patients that had prosthetic joint infections. Patients were randomized to either oral antibiotics or continued IV antibiotics to complete six weeks of primary therapy. So the idea would be a patient comes into the hospital, they get started on IV antibiotics, um, within seven days of either their source control procedure or starting IV antibiotics, if they didn't have a source control procedure, then they were either stepped down to oral or um, continued on IV antibiotics. After the six weeks, management was just up to the, to the treating team as far as suppressive, um, uh, suppressive therapy or no suppressive therapy. And so um, over 50% of the organisms in this study were staphylococci, so either staph aureus or coagulase negative staph. And then the remaining organisms, there was, there was a pretty wide distribution of gram positives and gram negatives. Um, the primary outcome was treatment failure, and it occurred in 1.2% of the patients with IV and 2% of the patients with oral, so less than a 1% difference here. Um, Uh, Of note, early discontinuation rates of whatever the patient was was randomized to, um, that occurred more often in the group of patients that received IV antibiotics. Um, 19% of the time with IV antibiotics, they had to stop early um, versus 13% with oral antibiotics. And then um, they they pointed out specifically here that IV catheter-related complications um, we're, were naturally lower in the oral beta-lactam group, 1% uh, versus 9%, and so overall similar outcomes with oral, and it, it seemed that there were fewer complications. Now specifically noting um, the oral antibiotic selection here, since we're focused primarily on uh, oral beta-lactams, there are, only about 83 patients. um, So 83 out of the approximate 500 patients in the oral group that received a beta-lactam. That was about 15%. And so the rest of those patients received fluoroquinolones, tetracycline, clindamycin, or some combination of the above. And then uh, one of the things that they didn't really account for was a lot of patients um, also received rifampin as well. They didn't really uh, consider that in their primary exposure. And so this study really addresses more the role of IV antibiotics versus oral, not specifically the role of oral, oral beta-lactams, but um, it, it is reassuring in that sense that it provides some information. Um, Jill or Zara, uh, do either of you have kind of additional thoughts on Aviva to add from what, what I had?
2: No, I agree with you, Jesse. Um, that was a nice summary. I'll just I'll add there was a, a nice article written in the Journal of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy by Seaton and colleagues that discusses the implications of the OVIBA study. So for anyone who hasn't read that, would encourage you to do so. Um, they do a really nice job of highlighting some of the clinical considerations and application of the trial, uh, the most important of which is um, well-managed, multidisciplinary outpatient management of patients, regardless of whether they're on IV or oral therapy. Because while we know know, IV therapy can have its complications, oral therapy can as well, including, of course, the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, like we discussed, um, antimicrobial resistance, drug interactions, intolerability, and, of course, difficulty with compliance.
1: Yeah, thank you for adding those thoughts. I agree. I I don't expect, and I haven't seen personally where I practice that either of these studies added to the existing literature has drastically shifted the management um, for most patients or providers. I I do think these studies provide uh, flexibility for managing individual patients. Um, And I I do think it's important to point out, uh, and the authors of Poet, OViva, and, and all the review articles, they really do point out that this preference for IV was, was an arbitrary starting point. It, it, I think it was a reasonable arbitrary starting point, but there were, it wasn't based on evidence that oral is worse. Um, so I mean, really, if you say what, what, what data is available, the available data points to similar outcomes with oral or IV. Um, but it's not hard to come up with arguments why you would or wouldn't use one or the other in any one patient. And so I think most people will continue to manage them however they feel most comfortable. Um, I think more time for people that get comfortable with it and, and more studies focusing on or provide a variety of different um, specific infections, organisms and drugs is gonna be needed before PO beta-lactams really become sort of a a comfortable treatment option. Um, I do think both of these studies add another piece to the bigger puzzle, um, add some some familiarity, some comfort with the use of oral antibiotics in general. And I do think they lay the foundation for for future studies.
0: Yeah, I I agree with both of you. And um, I, I think as we, switch to more of a patient-centered decision-making where you can say to the patient, here are your options. You could take this antibiotic four times a day orally. We can hook you up to an IV once a day, whatever it is. you It ends up being something that's just another option that's gonna probably vary depending on that patient and their own individual clinical scenario or uh, preference. So I agree with you, these are really um, excellent additions to change that dogma, as you mentioned, Jesse, that IV is always better than oral, which clearly doesn't seem to be the case. So now we're gonna pivot to a new segment to the podcast, which we call I Feel Nerdy. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks and fun facts. On this episode of I'm Feeling Nerdy or I Feel Nerdy, I'd like to invite my guests to offer a hidden cephalosporin or cephalosporin pearl the number of different cephalosporin antibiotics is massive as anyone who's ever pulled up Cooser's antibiotic guide and turned to the 16 cephalosporin chapters knows. So uh, I have, my pearl is very short. So I'll just start off and just say that, um, you know, when it comes to first generation cephalosporin cephalexin just really dominates the field for oral agents. And for me, the the little dark horse in the background is cephadroxyl, right? It's an oral, Cephalosporin has great bioavailability. Um, You can dose it BID. I I don't know why we don't use it more, but uh, in my I Feel Nerdy, I think a lot about Cephydroxyl, you know, just when I'm in the shower or, you know, hanging out because I wonder why don't we use it more? All right, Jill, how about you?
2: Oh, I love that, Zara. I don't know if I can top that one. So, so since we're discussing oral beta-lactams, uh, one cephalosporin pearl I have is, is something a lot of our hospitals that I work with are doing with their automatic IV to PO protocols. And one of those is giving pharmacy the ability to automatically convert ceftaraxone to cefalexin for UTIs if the organism is susceptible to cefazolin. Now, of course, this excludes bacteremia because we're not able to infer susceptibility to oral cephalosporins from cefazolin among blood isolates but it's still helpful for those patients with a cefazolin-susceptible UTI without a concurrent bacteremia. And then the other scenario in some of our hospital's IV to PO protocols is automatically converting ceftriaxone to an oral cephalosporin such as ceftonir or cefuroxime, for COPD exacerbations in CAP. And of course, this is, as long as the patient is tolerating oral and is clinically improved. Um, and both of those additions have helped our hospitals provide better care to our patients by switching them to oral sooner for some of those uncomplicated infections where oral beta-lactams are not so controversial and and have a lot more solid evidence for for efficacy.
0: Those are both great and things that I think I need to do at my own institution. So thanks, Jill, for those ideas. How about you, Jesse?
1: So similar to Zara, I I often think about cephalosporins in strange life scenarios. And oftentimes, oftentimes my mind gravitates more towards the information we don't have or the information that I wish we did have for for really informing um, treatment decisions when using oral cephalosporins. um, First step down therapy, usually for gram-negative bacteremia. So I have a couple of ideas, research ideas that maybe some people can jump on. They might not be good ideas, but they're ideas. You know, we we touched on throughout this, this podcast how we don't have all the information we'd like, or, or much of the same information we'd have when using a parental beta-lactam or a fluoroquinolone. And so, you know, some of the things that is lacking is direct measurement of serum concentrations in MICs in patients. That's unlikely ha- to happen. So that's that's a pipe dream, I'm not throwing that out there, but two that I, I think could be done um, by people that may be listening to this. Um, first of all would be, uh, Pharmacokinetic models for for a wider variety of patients and doses of these drugs, you know, specifically with regard to some of the less commonly used cephalosporins like cefiroxime and You know, there's the package insert information on cefiroxime, which was done in healthy volunteers. And then you can find one study um, that was done in elderly patients. And Uh, the PK is very different. I also think it would be interesting to study, um, just like we do with piptazo and cefepime and and carbapenems, there's a lot of study on non-traditional doses. I think it would be interesting to study that in in oral beta-lactams, you know, uh, looking at things like cefuroxime 750 to 1,000 milligrams every six to eight hours, or cefuroxime 400 to 600, Um, every six to eight hours, you know, taking advantage of of the ways that we know we can optimize time above the MIC. Um, And, you know, I think some of this has been done. It's just sitting in a a dusty literature pile from the 1970s and 1980s, and it's not easy to find, so um, people please share if you do know. Um, but I, I think it could address things like, is this safe? Can patients tolerate this? Is absorption saturable? Where giving more dose actually results in higher concentration. Um, so that's the, the first idea I had was, was better um, pharmacokinetic models. And then the, the last one, I think probably a lot of institutions could, could do, it's correlating the uh, susceptibilities that we receive to um, the oral cephalosporins that we'd actually be using. So we talked about how you might just get a cefazolin uh, susceptibility or a cefazolin MIC. And then we're extrapolating that to We're extrapolating that to cefiroxin. Um So I think any institution that has a microbiology lab and has some learners or they're, they're willing to work with you, um, you could take a sample of your Enterobacteriales isolates, um, whether it's just the, the bacteremia isolates or any urinary isolates, and in the background, you could do um, uh, broth microdilution of cefazolin, ceftriaxone, um, cefuroxime, cefpodoxime, whatever oral beta lactams that you're interested in, and, and you could do this for strep or other organisms as well. And it could um, help you correlate. You know, I when I have a cefazolin MIC of two, what does that mean for cefalexin? What does that mean for for cefadoxime? So those are my pearls.
0: Thank you, Jesse, for all these wonderful ideas on research um, and giving, inspiring some of our listeners to help us answer these questions. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I have been your host, Zara Casamoli Escobar, and our featured speakers have been Dr. Jill Cowper and Dr. Jesse Sutton. Our podcast production team also includes Jillian Hayes, Edo Abbasi McGee, Joanne Fong, Rachel Britt, Julie Justo, Erin McCreary, Kelly Cole, and Anna Zow. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.